but, but it's so easy to say these things, isn't it? And, and then it's so easy to look around the fellowship and say, yeah, right, you know? I mean, is this really the bride of Christ? The answer is yes. Those who are truly born again of the Spirit of God, those who have truly come in repentance and faith to Christ, we're the bride of Christ. We're radiant in his sight. And he calls us to live that out. There should be something so wholesome, so holy, so attractive in the right sense about the church, be it the church universal or or any one fellowship, that it really should stand out in society. You know, it should be the case that the whole of Islam and Soham and everywhere else are, are talking about the churches in their towns and villages. You know, what is it about that group of people that they're so unworldly in the right way? So unworldly. It's, it's, it's like they're not really living here. It's, it's like they, they belong somewhere else. You, you know how you, you go into society and you, maybe you're going to Tesco's in Ely or something and you're suddenly aware that the people shopping next to you are from some other country? You know, it's so obvious because as soon as they open their mouth and say something, it's a different language and you think, oh, you know, there's another lot from Poland or wherever they might be. It should be as distinctive as that when we open our mouths that we're not part of this world, that we're a set-apart people for Christ. And that's his church. And we started looking last time, and we're continuing these verses here, at the diversity, and that's before Paul gets on to these gifts and the controversy that was existing there in Corinth over these gifts, and exists today, of course, over these gifts. He wants us to see that God's purpose is that there should be diversity, in order that we work together. That you can't say, okay, well I've got this gift and this good gift I've got. God says, no, 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 no. The gift that I've given to you is not for you. The gift I've given to you is for you to use in the context of the church. It's, it's the gift I've given to the church. You're merely the channel. In fact, in one of the lists of gifts, um, in the, the lift in Ephesians 4, where he's talking about the gifts, he actually describes the people as the gifts. Pastors uh, and so on. It's not so much the gift that he's given to the pastor, but he describes the person himself as being the gift. And that's a a right way of looking at it. Whatever gift God has given you, yes, it's an integral part of you, but he has given the gift and he's given you for the work of the church and for you to use that gift in the context of the church. So I want us to see first the true value of every part, verses 21 to 24, if you're tempted ever to think you're more important than someone else in the context of the church or in God's sight or in any other way, you couldn't be more wrong. You just imagine for a minute being without any one part of your body. You know, there are bits when they're pain in us that we'd sort of like to get rid of, or at least we think we would, but we wouldn't really, would we? And any part of our body, however insignificant it might seem to us in the sense that we don't spend a lot of time thinking about it, maybe we don't very often even touch it. I mean, you know, I don't know how often you wash between your toes or something. Gents don't answer and wives don't look at your husbands. But, you know, I mean, those bits that you maybe think or behind your ears when you're a kid and your mum's always telling you to go back and wash behind your ears. If you imagine for one minute not having that bit there, you wouldn't be a whole person, would you? And you've only got to think for one moment about what happens when one little bit of your body goes wrong to, to understand Paul's point here. 
one splinter in your toe, one splinter under your fingernail, does, doesn't it just throw everything out of kilter? You know, it becomes an obsession, isn't it? You've got to get that out. And all the time it's in there, one tooth aching in your head. You know, life becomes a misery, doesn't it? One little cold off a man, one man cold, you know. And, I, I mean, they're far more devastating, obviously. But, you know, I, I, I was greeting people as they came in this morning. The number of people saying, oh, I've got a cold, you know, it's terrible. And I, I feel the same because I've got one. <coughs> and everything goes wrong, doesn't it? And what is it? It's, it's tiny... Oh, I'm going to put my foot in there because I can't never remember a cold a virus or the bacteria, aren't they? But anyway, whatever it is, it's microscopic and it throws your whole body awry, doesn't it? You pull one muscle in your back. You have one tiny little blockage in your sinus. I mean, how often do you ever think about your sinuses until they get blocked? And you can't sleep, you can't talk properly, you can't think properly. Everything goes wrong. Your whole body is brought down by one little bit not working right and God says the same is true of the church. The same is true of the church. Any local fellowship, if one bit isn't functioning right, if one bit isn't doing what God's intended it to do, if one bit isn't using its gift in the right way within the church, if one other part is looking down on that bit and belittling it, whatever it might be, if for some reason each bit isn't working right, then the whole church suffers. That's God's point in this passage. And of course what's happening at Corinth is the church has become divided over these gifts. So consequently the whole church is suffering instead of being blessed by the very gifts that God's given them for their blessing. And we recognise this by the way we treat our bodies, don't we? Look at verse 22. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. <coughs> well surely he's not talking about our chest and our legs and our arms we don't think of those as being weak parts of our body do they? they're strong parts we don't need to take special care to protect those but what about our eyes and our ears you, you work with tools you put goggles on or you put a face mask on you work with something that's loud and you put ear defenders on because they're delicate they're weaker in that sense aren't they and if we don't make special care to protect them, they get damaged. I love woodwork. And sometimes I'm stupid enough not to put face protection on, you're doing something, and you get one little bit of sawdust in your eye. Tiny bit, you can't even see it when you're trying to look for it, a little metal shaving, and it's agony till you find it and get it out, isn't it? And God says, look, you take special care of those bits because they're weaker. You don't say because they're weaker, I'm not going to bother about them. You say because they're weaker, I'm going to have to make extra precautions to look after them and protect them. When they went into battle in those days, they didn't go inside a great big tin can that covered their entire body so they couldn't move. Of course not. In fact, if you know how the Romans dressed, you, you know that there are parts of their body, their legs and that, they didn't take particular care to protect at all of their arms. But the vulnerable parts, of course, they took special care to protect. And verse 23, those parts that are less honourable. not sure exactly what parts he had in mind, I suggest it might be 
Uh, I guess your stomach's a part that, generally speaking, people don't... Um, although fashion changes, doesn't it? And some fashions these days seem to be that you do make a show of your stomach. But generally speaking, you cover your stomach. And most men attempt to cover their stomachs or their wives tell them they need to cover their stomachs. They're, they're, they're sort of less honourable. And maybe your feet. I mean, ladies seem to go at great lengths to wear shoes that make their feet appear a different shape to what they actually are. I guess they consider them, as they are, less honourable. So Paul says, what do you do with those parts that are less honourable? You take special provision for them. And you've only got to look in your wife's closet manual, nod, to know that they take very special care of their feet. Apparently one pair of shoes aren't enough. You need at least 30 or 40 to ensure that your feet are honoured in the right way. You don't cut them off and throw them away. And God's saying it's the same in the church. And those parts, he says, what? That are unpresentable or less presentable. Those parts, in other words, that you should keep covered in public. Those parts to do with our sexual <coughs> relationship. <coughs> Excuse me. Those parts that God has given us for a sexual relationship. Those parts that we, we don't display in public. What do we do? We cover them. We have special coverings for them, special clothes designed for them. And that's how it's got to be in the church, he says. If you look at one person's gift and say, well, that's a relatively unimportant gift compared with that one for the function in the church, or that's a gift that we could perhaps do without and the church would still function. You don't for that reason say it's less or get rid of it. You give it special honour because you would be tempted to do otherwise with it. Because God's intent is that that gift should be there and that it should be used otherwise he wouldn't have given it. Now before we go any further, can I just say something lest we get this totally wrong and get the whole picture wrong here God isn't saying in this passage or anywhere else that lazy Christians should just be accepted in their laziness and we should say well if that's the way you are great, we welcome that he isn't saying that or the Christians who are always going off doing their own thing and are just a loose cannon and, and, and causing disruption and what not in the church you say well that's the way they are we must love them and accept them as they are God says here there mustn't be division we've got to be united he's not saying that he's not saying that Christians sitting there saying well I want to do this and they're clearly not gifted to do that we should be encouraged to do it and say that's great do it because that's what you want to do he's talking here about people who have got God given gifts how we recognise that and how we encourage it and how we use it in the church. And that comes in a direction towards the church leadership, it comes towards each other, how we recognise each other and help each other and it comes towards as individuals, how willing are we to allow myself and my gift to be used in the church in the way that God wants it to be used. So let's just stop here for a moment, shall we? Let's get practical for a minute. We asked last time, and I'll ask it again this time, how do you honestly consider all of the other Christians in this fellowship? Maybe you've been a Christian here for many, many years, 
maybe you can look back almost now from the end of your life and look back and say I've been a Christian all these years I've been a Christian there in the church all those years maybe you can look back at times when you were so involved in some aspect of the work here and now others are taking it up and others are doing it how do you view that? is it with delight that God has now given the same gifts that he gave to you to another generation that they can pick it up and carry it on? or is it possible it's with some jealousy? Or, or with some regret that now they are doing it whereas before you were it, it, it's so human to be like that isn't it or maybe it's the other way around maybe you're young and you're looking to those who are old and thinking well all old fogies and I, I mean is, is that how you look at older Christians we're supposed to value them for who they are as we looked last time for the simple fact that they are Christians that's the issue it's not what gift they've got It's not whether they can do this or that, it's the fact that Christ died for them. It's the fact that he has brought them by his spirit to repentance and faith. It's the fact that you're going to spend eternity with them, worshipping the Lord. It's the fact that God loves them every bit as much as he loves you. If you're a Christian and they're a Christian. Nothing to do with what ability they've got or otherwise. My friend, how do we look at each other? Is it with joy? when we see someone else using their gift is that a cause of joy to us that's another gift God's given us here as a church to be able to use do you see do I see everyone else equally as part of this church as I am or you are not according to what office they hold but just because they're a Christian and they've committed themselves to this church Are you thrilled at their participation even if it's in an area that you've seen as your own and now maybe the Lord is saying I want you to share it with them? Here's a second question. How do you assess yourself if you're a Christian this morning? You know, there is a temptation I would suggest to um, try and assess ourselves by how well we're doing. Now that's not wrong. There's a right way in which we can do that it is right that we sit down before the Lord and examine our lives and say how am I progressing, how am I doing how committed am I to the Lord how willing am I to serve the Lord Um, is the Lord using me and using the gifts that I've got for his glory that's a right thing to do, of course it is but it's a very small step from that to evaluating ourselves against other people and that's disastrous because God has given each one of us different gifts he isn't asking us all to be the same he, he, the whole idea of the church is that we're totally dependent on each other and if that's the case we've all got different gifts and if that's the case we're all going to achieve different things by the use of those gifts and if I for one minute start saying okay let me compare how I'm doing here with how X or Y is doing here I'm going to go wrong because if God has given them a different gift to me it might be that their gift is particularly in uh, young children's work or their gift might be in evangelism or their gift might be in um, administration uh, some of the gifts we're going to look at and if that's the case then obviously in that way I'm not going to be doing as well as them but equally well in whatever gift God's given me they're not going to be doing as well as I in the sense of exercising that gift So can I plead with you not to compare and with myself not to compare 
ourselves with each other in terms of assessing how well we're doing. Let's compare ourselves with what God says in his word and with our own knowledge of how obedient we are being to his word. Am I submitting to Christ? Am I serving him in the context of the church? Am I prepared to do whatever God asks me to do? Do I hold my brothers and sisters higher than myself? Do I delight to serve them? Ways like that, rather than saying, well, at least I'm doing better than that person, that is totally wrong. And let me just ask a third question before we go on. What is your attitude towards those who you feel have got a higher gift than you? Scripture tells us to... um, not to think too highly or too lowly of ourselves but think of ourselves with sober judgement isn't it that's a hard thing to do isn't it to, to assess ourselves with sober judgement how do you see those who've got by your concept a higher gift than what you've got I, I suggest you it's very easy to go one of two ways either towards jealousy or towards wrongful honour you either start to put them on a pedestal which is totally wrong or you start to be jealous of them and not love them as we should. Both are wrong. The simple fact is, if that's the case, God has given them a different gift to you. Praise the Lord! You know, we can spend a lifetime wishing God had given us a different gift to the one we've got, or different gifts to the ones we've got. If he hasn't, he hasn't, for his good purposes. And the gift he's given you, he's given you for his good purposes. All we're called to do is to say, thank you Lord for this gift, how do you want me to use it? How can I serve you with it? And if it pleases the Lord at some time to give us a greater gift, and there's nothing wrong with desiring that, scripture says, in fact it encourages us to, then that's his prerogative and that's his domain. But until he does, we use the gift we've got for his glory and his honour. What is the goal of valuing every part? Verses 25 to 27. Let's just read them again, shall we? Uh, 25 to 27. So that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. What's the goal of valuing every part? Is it just that, well, you know, we're really loving, uh, friendly bunch of people. Well, that's part of it, of course it is. God's goal is more than that. Look, here's the first thing. The very first thing he says, verse 25, no division in the body. That's God's first goal. That the church shouldn't be divided on these things. Let me just explain what I mean by that. There is a sense in which we do have division in the church. It's inevitable. Paul's already talked about it back in chapter 11. Remember what he said, verse 18. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences or ESV factions among you to so which of you have God's approval. So Paul says there, I fully know that there must be differences or factions within you as a church to show which have actually got God's approval. In other words, there are senses in which we expect to have conflict and divisions within the church. The the obvious division is between Christian and non-Christian. That's the difference between the visible and invisible church, isn't it? 
We can look at this and say this is the church, but we know in saying that that not everyone here is saved. We pray that they will become. But obviously there are going to be differences between those who are truly saved and those who aren't. But even within those who are saved, there are going to be differences over doctrinal issues. Uh, We recognise that. Some are going to interpret scripture different to another and as long as they have been faithful and honourable to God in the way they interpret it and it's not of primary concern it's, it's of a secondary issue we, we don't worry about that we recognise those differences there are going to be differences and it's particularly what he's referring to there back in Lemnus show who's got God's approval in other words um, when we come to make a decision and this is why we do voting for deacons and elders and pastors the way we do our our goal, our objective is to know God's will God has one goal he either wants the person to serve or he doesn't want the person to serve how do we determine that? we have to have some way of deciding so we ask every member of the church to pray about it and then to vote as they believe God wants how do we assess that? Well, obviously God isn't saying to one, yes I do and to another, no I don't. That would be a nonsense. Paul says here, to show which of God's approval. In other words, some will rightly discern God's will and some won't. We recognise that. And so we, we say we, we need to get a certain percentage in the hope that by doing that we, we get which is God's will of the two. Now those things are right and those things happen and those things we're to expect. But this is something totally different. Paul's talking here not about divisions over theology, he's not talking about divisions uh, over whether or not a person's saved, he's talking here about divisions over what abilities and gifts we've got in the church. Over what we're able to do in the church. About what we'd like to do in the church. And he's saying there should be no division on things like this if everybody would just use the gifts that God's given them the church would be complete and the church would be radiant and the church would be beautiful but if they're not then he says divisions occur terrible one here at Corinth and how many churches do you know of that have been split down the middle over divisions about gifts God says that's not what should happen rather there should be no division secondly verse 25 there should be mutual care one for another its parts should have equal concern for each other well I guess we're all concerned for ourselves that's sort of our base nature isn't it that we're very concerned about ourselves I guess we're concerned about those we get along with. We're probably concerned about those that we've got similar gifts to because we identify with them and we relate to them. But what about those we don't naturally relate to at all? What about those who are maybe age-wise the opposite extreme to us? Personality-wise very different. Gift-wise very different. And we just sort of feel like I love them but I'm sort of on a different planet to them. Paul says God's goal in recognising this diversity amongst the gifts but the unity that comes when we pull them together is that there should be mutual care one for another. That I should be as concerned for the least brother or sister of mine in the church as I should for anyone else. And likewise you. There's a third goal, verse 26, that there'll be 
mutual well-being in the church. In other words, the church would be effective and it would be radiant and in its outworking, in its, its witness, it should be what Christ wants it to be. It talks about rejoicing. Um, you know, it's, um, <coughs> it's literally offering congratulations to each other. The, the literal sort of translation of the word there. It, it, it's that if we can value each other for who that person is and what gift they have or haven't got, if we can just value them for the simple fact that they are my brother or sister in Christ and nothing else, there would be such joy and rejoicing, wouldn't there? I mean, I mean what's going to happen when we get to heaven? You know, I, I do believe there are some Christians who've got the idea that there's going to be the sort of Baptist um, block over there and the sort of Methodist block over there, Church of England somewhere else. I like, I like Rico Tice's, uh, who's a vicar in the Church of England, I hasten to say before I share it, that uh, the Church of England will be the first to, to rise at Christ's return because it says the dead in Christ will rise first. Um, that, that's, that's his Church of England joke. I wouldn't dare say otherwise. Uh, but you know the idea that sort of somehow there's going to be all these different segregations and there's going to be those who've got nice voices over there and those who have got grumpy voices over there and it's not going to be like that is it? What, what is going to be the unifying thing in glory that we are blood bought believers? I don't believe for one second that all our distinctiveness is going to go we're going to be there representing every tribe and people and language and nation on earth aren't we? That's not going to be taken away. That's going to be the wonder of heaven. That's going to be the glory of heaven that Christ has redeemed out of all peoples a people for his very own. And that's what's going to unite us. That one's going to be saying there, saying, oh, well, of course, I don't really get on with that person because of this, that or the other. It's going to be, that is my brother. She's my sister. He's my brother. For whom Jesus Christ died. And that's what God wants in his church. And before we ever start looking at these gifts, unless we should make the terrible error of going down the route that so many churches have gone down, where the gifts become the focus and then the dividing issue, this has got to be there first, hasn't it? And that's what Paul's saying in this passage. Before we ever start worrying about the gifts, understand what should happen. Because you're the body of Christ. Verse 27. Now, if, how literally do we take this? I know it's a metaphor, but I mean, how literally do we, we take what he says here in verse 27? You see, if we take this literally, isn't what he's saying this? We as a fellowship, the part of this gathering this morning that is the invisible church, the part of this gathering that are truly saved, is the body of Christ when we're all together. And he says there, each one of you is a part of it. Now if we take that literally as he says it there, then isn't it logical to conclude that if one person isn't being treated as part of that family, that body is incomplete? Isn't that what the whole of this passage has been saying? Isn't the conclusion, the inevitable conclusion, that if one person says, well I'm not going to use the gift that I've got in the church, or I want a different gift and unless I can do that I'm not going to do anything, isn't the conclusion that the body is incomplete? If one person says, well, I'm not going to go anymore, I'm not going to go on Sunday nights or whatever it might be, isn't the conclusion that the body's not complete? Surely it must be. The body is only complete if we take what he says here as it says it, 
when every Christian who's part of that church unitedly together pulls their gifts and works for the common good of that body of Christ. And he says when that happens it suddenly becomes a radiant, amazing unit in which there is massive diversity but a wonderful unity. So let me just throw in a couple of thoughts. What does that mean then? If I'm a Christian and I say, well, I'm only going to come Sunday mornings, I'm not going to bother about Sunday nights or church night. Does that not mean, maybe you've never thought of it like this, that when the church comes together Sunday night or Wednesday night, it's not complete? In this sense, at least. It's a radiant body that's not functioning in its totality. It seems to me that's what we would conclude. Now we might have very many reasons why we can't be here Sunday night or we can't be here Wednesday night and they're very legitimate reasons and I'm not questioning that. But what I'm saying is if you haven't, have you ever looked at it that way? That by my going in that alone I'm making that body more complete. And by going and contributing and being part of it in my worship, in my prayers, in whatever way it might be I'm helping that body to function more as the body God wants it to be. What's your reaction when it's John now rather than Steve says we've got a whole list of jobs need doing. As he says every church members meeting as Steve did for the many years <coughs> I won't try and remember how many before him. What's your response? Wow is it <coughs> maybe that's a way I could use some gift God's given me. Maybe I don't even know what that gift is yet until I try a job. <coughs> I'll discover. I'll either put the thing up wonky or I'll put it up straight or whatever it might be then I'll discover whether or not that's my gift but do you look at it that way? Have you ever thought for example that well I couldn't do any jobs but what I could do I could go down there and make them a cup of tea while they're down there working what a wonderful encouragement that would be it doesn't list the gift of tea making amongst the gifts of the Holy Spirit but I tell you it would be a great encouragement certainly lists administration at least go up to someone who's doing the work and say I just want you to know that I value what you're doing I just want you to know that I pray for you in what you're doing how do you respond to those who are doing hold offices in the church be it teaching the youngsters looking after them in creche elders, deacons, pastor is it that you envy them what they're doing Is it that you're putting them on some sort of pedestal or is it that you're trying to show mutual concern and love for them? You know, I find it so encouraging to know and I do know of a few who've told me and I I take them at their word that they pray for me every day as pastor. Now I know they're not praying for me as Dave Hall, they're praying for me because I hold the office of pastor and that is such an encouragement and help. You know, have you done that? Have, Have you gone to one of the deacons or an elder or Sunday school teacher or crash worker or whatever and said I just want you to know that I, that's not the gift God's given me but I want you to know that I will pray for you every day as you do it or every Sunday or whatever it might be do you thank them for what they're doing word of thanks goes a long way doesn't it when someone is self-sacrificingly seeking to serve the Lord in the context of the church by serving brothers and sisters in Christ if you just 
gave them a word of thanks. I know I've read this before. Let me just close with it. I find it so powerful. Paul received an automobile from his brother as a Christmas present. On Christmas Eve, when Paul came out of his office, a street urchin was walking around the shiny new car, admiring it. Is this your car, mister? he asked. Paul nodded. My brother gave it to me for Christmas. The boy was astounded. You mean your brother gave it to you and it didn't cost you nothing? Boy, I wish. He hesitated. Of course, Paul knew what he was going to wish for. He was going to wish he had a brother like that. But when the, what the lad said jarred Paul all the way down to his heels. I wish, the boy went on, that I could be a brother like that. Paul looked at the boy in astonishment and impulsively he added, Would you like to take a ride in my car? Oh yeah, I'd love that. After a short ride, the boy turned and with his eyes aglow said, Mister, would you mind driving in front of my house? Paul smiled a little. He thought he knew what the lad wanted. He wanted to show his neighbours that he could ride home in a big car. But Paul was wrong again. Will you stop where those steps are? The boy asked. He ran up the steps. Then a little while Paul heard him coming back, but he was not coming fast. He was carrying his little crippled brother. He sat him down on the bottom step, then sort of squeezed up against him and pointed to the car. There she is, buddy, just like I told you upstairs. His brother gave him to him for Christmas and it didn't cost him a thing. And someday I'm going to give you one just like it. Then you can see for yourself all the pretty things in the Christmas windows that I've been telling you about. Paul got out and lifted the lad into the front seat of his car. The shining-eyed elder brother climbed in beside him and the three of them began a memorable holiday ride. Let's just pray. Father God, it grieves my heart so much and I don't begin to understand how much